0: We have our special guest today, Peter S. Williams. You've been with us since the early days of communication world. Right, For yeah. We, we joined, did you join us in 2001,
1: 2002? 2001, 2002,
0: yeah. 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 We started this course in 2001, and he was, was one of the, the first lecturers mm. we connected with with Damaris in the UK, which has inspired the Damaris Norway. <laughs> At present the Morris UK is a very different thing than it used to be. Uh, But but he used to work with the Morris, looking at films, writing about films. Um, And one of the things he he um, he was working on and developing was school conferences. That is the the English schools, they have some things they need to have to taught their students. (coughs) Logic, um, ethics. Um, and they offered for general secular secular schools, courses you had two or three hundred st- students or pupils in one room which is quite a challenge but they made uh, what we are ge- going to d- uh, get today is kind of maybe the essence of, it, it's, it's com- yeah. compressed but it, it's teaching on logic for secular young people um, which is also a way of of helping them to think critically, and then even bringing in the question of God, and helping them to understand you can actually argue. And arguing is not as easy as just claiming things. And we need to learn that as Christians, um, that just claiming we have the truth is not sufficient to convince people. We need good arguments, and then we need to learn some basic logics. So you need to think uh, um, on two levels here. Here we get a very basic tool in terms of thinking logically. I'm really going to do some exercises as well here. And then you need to think of the second level. This is also communication. That's not just for Christian, but could be, could be done for even secular groups. Think of yourself as teachers for, for, uh, for high school students in Norway. Teach them to do logic. And you can use the existence of God as a, as a case study for how to use Logic. How can you argue for existence of God or against it? Uh, And and when they when they work at this, uh, they will see that okay, claiming something is not as easy as actually arguing it. And then you can show you know logic. You show that the question of God is relevant, and challenge Christians and non-Christians actually to talk, try to argue the case, which is a kind of pre-evangelism, right? bringing up the questions, giving them the tools, and then, uh, yeah. So the first part of the day is on logic, which is taken from these school conferences. And then the afternoon will be on the Old Testament, which is a very different subject. It's going to be interesting stretch from Aristotle, logic, and then to the Old Testament archaeology. So uh, I've asked them to, to make sure that we have the introduction to the Old Testament, history, because if you don't know the Old Testament history, archaeology don't get set, it doesn't make sense. We an overview of this and then a little bit of introduction to archaeology before we go to the British Museum and see the items with our own eyes. Mm. And then we go to a misalab in the evening. In the interesting evening. Mm. So Pete, we're very happy that you will join us. You've been with us from the start. Uh, he's doing actually a lot of writing and publishing for us and then we bring him in for the teaching here. He's gonna be in October back with us for October. He is uh, he is the the daddy of the symposium. The Veritas Research Symposium. That's a new thing this year. Um, you brought up the idea when we we're talking maybe last year. Yeah. So what, how can we develop the Veritas conference? So what what about do some research? Ah Friday before the conference? You bring in researchers bring up a topic. Now, I think, mm. maybe 10 papers. Yeah.
1: And then there's going to be a, a special edition of the um, Theophilus journal that yes. so uh, comes out of that. So ma- we uh,
0: uh, papers for this journal. So we do research. And publishing is the sibilus, the, the, mm. the real uh, thing you need to do at university level. So publication worldview is really helping the research part of, uh, mm. of our school, which we haven't been able to do very much mm. until now. So thank you very much, Peter. Yeah, for yeah being part of us, and also um, for contributing here.
1: So, Grand. It is your well. uh, thank you one or more. I, I hope you're having a, a, a fun and stimulating uh, week uh, here in the UK. Um, I always look forward uh, to the study tour. It's one of the highlights of my year, really. Gimler-Collins students, I find, are always uh, so enthusiastic mm-hmm. and uh, nice. Uh, and uh, we have a good day uh, together, and as Bjorn says, it's going to be full, rather packed full of of different things, Um, so if you're not enjoying what we're doing at uh, any one particular time, don't worry, wait five minutes, we'll probably be on a different topic, so just sort of bear with uh, the bits that you don't particularly uh, connect with, if there are any. Um, These uh, school conferences, I've, I've um stop doing them now but I did them for sort of 10-12 uh, years uh, with Damaris. Uh, I've done them to thousands of uh, students in secular schools uh, and I did one conference that was on introduction to logic uh, in the context of the, the God debate and one conference that was thinking about um, ethical issues, um, thinking uh, in the context of your worldview, how does your worldview affect what you think a human being is and how does that affect what you think about um, the judicial system, Uh, do we have free will, are people responsible for their actions and so on. Um, So I'm going to uh, steal some of my material from the Logic Conference in order to use that to teach logic to you, Uh, but it's not the whole conference and I'm going to kind of put it in a a slightly different context to embed it more in the context of the the Worldview course that that you're doing. Um, So it's not exactly the same Thing, so bear with. Um, let me put this in the, the context of what in uh, English. And I'm told this word doesn't translate very well. We haven't found the, the best translation of this word yet, have we, been on? Spirituality. What would be the best? Uh
0: <laughs> we, we've been to agree. <laughs> yeah. We think that w- w- when we talk about spirituality, only it's not just the it's not just the, the Christian religious part. Mm. But it's kind of the whole. How relate to reality Mm. in a very deep sense? Yeah, this kind of spirituality is kind of the broad sense of being spiritual.
1: Yeah. So this is a this is a general definition of spirituality that would would apply to to anyone would apply to an atheist or Buddhist or Muslim uh, as much as to a Christian. Uh, I think spirituality has a general structure and then you have different spiritualities so you have a a humanist spirituality a buddhist spirituality a christian a christ-centered spirituality and so on but all spiritualities have these uh, these kind of three elements of our assumptions and beliefs about reality our worldview if you like our attitudes attitudes of our hearts towards what we think about reality and then the the actions that we do the way we behave because of that conjunction of our our worldview and our heart so it literates nicely in english if you think of assumptions attitudes actions or uh, the combination of your head and your heart and your hands, if you like. And I would emphasise that by, by heart or attitudes, I'm not just meaning how you feel about things, although that's included, but I, I, I mean that the heart in a broader sense. I mean also what you commit yourself to, what you're committed to, what you choose with your, your will is, is bound up in this. So I think all spiritualities are trying to be um, ways of relating to all of reality through this combination of your head and your heart and your hands and, and they generally try and do this in a way that that pulls your personhood together, that integrates who you are, makes you a more whole or integrated personality rather than being a way of living that um is sort of self-contradictory and pulling you apart as a person. And actually this is you you'll see an overlap here between uh what I'm sort of saying and what Francis Schaeffer uh, taught about spiritualities and analyzing non-Christian worldviews and his Uh, method in apologetics of of helping people to think through their own views and to put your finger on the point of contradiction, the point of of tension within the non-Christian view of things, to help people to be dissatisfied with their spirituality as a way of motivating them to think about perhaps adopting a Christian spirituality. Um, uh, Because I think if Christianity is true following christ is a way of life that that brings wholeness to us as people uh in in the biblical language brings shalom peace wholeness you were going to say shalom weren't you uh to us and that non-christian ways of living will inevitably have some uh point of conflict in them um that the more in a sense the more consistently you try to live in a non Christian system, the more you'll be pulled apart and disintegrated as a person. The more consistently you live with a Christian view of things, the more you'll be pulled together. Yeah? So, Jesus got here. First, of course, he's drawing upon various verses in the Old Testament when he answers the question about what's the greatest commandment. And he says it's well, it's to love God with all of your heart and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. See, it's here first, this, this, this structure of spirituality, is just because that's the way God has created us. Um, a, as persons in his image, we have this uh, structure of, of living in the world. Um, and you can look back to, to verses like Deuteronomy 6, 5, that Jesus is drawing upon here. And just to broaden this briefly before we, we narrow down <laughs> into just the logic part, as it were, I, I end up with this uh, this lovely grid. You've got access to the PDFs of all, of all of this, so don't worry about taking notes too much. We have here the spirituality, your worldviews, your attitudes, your actions. Uh, this links to, I'm sure you've started learning about classical rhetoric, um, the transcendent values, truth, goodness and beauty and the Christian uh, virtues. So we have for example your, your actions, your spiritual actions uh, your, in your spirituality that's, that's communicated by your ethos and you judge your person's ethos, you judge people's actions by whether or not they're good and so that uh, relates to, it grows from and leads to the, the, the Christian values of virtues of love and worship. Within Christianity, love is not just a, a feeling, it's a doing for the other person's good. Yeah, A commitment to the other person's good. They, they overlap. Your attitudes uh, of your heart, uh, communicated here by, by pathos. Uh, judged by beauty, asking the question, is that a beautiful way of life? When Jesus describes himself as, I am the the good shepherd, Greek actually has several words that you might translate as good. Um, one is uh, agathos, uh, good uh, in the sense of um, particularly practically good, uh, good for something. But there's another word in Greek for, for good, that means something more like attractive or the beautiful good, kalos. And when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, the word he uses is kalos. I am the kalos shepherd. I am the attractive. I am the beautiful good shepherd. Um, Following me, being part of my flock, uh, is to be part of a beautiful way of living. And then at the level of uh, your beliefs, your assumptions about reality, of someone's world view, it's communicated rationally through logos, through where we get logic from. And we want to judge beliefs about reality by truth. Are they true or not? And so that relates to um, faith, wisdom, um, and so on. Uh, so, spirituality, rhetoric, values, and virtues all relate to one another, all bound together. Okay, so before I narrow down onto the logic, but I'm, I'm saying thinking about logic is actually part of your spirituality. <laughs> probably don't get that message in the pulpit very often <laughs> we could think about why that is and the cultural influences around that and so on um but there you go but any, any questions about what i've been saying about spirituality before we, we really sort of narrow down and, and do some of this conference material uh, on logic i should say you might know i've, I've got a Microphone on because um, I got a podcast which you can find through the material there. that's freely available online, and uh, I tend to record stuff that I'm doing it. And if it uh, works out well, put it on the put it on the, on the podcast. So just warn you about that. Um, but any questions? Okay, I shall move on. Um, Forgive me for having to do everything I- in English. My, my level of Norwegian is about a one year old at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, once I've said uh, tack and fantastisk, I'm kind of, uh, I can order b- brown bread, brod with mit smear. Uh, <laughs> breakfast is okay, and then I'm lost, so I have to do it in English, but mm. if I i try and define any technical words, uh, but if there's anything you don't understand that's, that's my fault, not yours, so don't be shy about saying, uh, Ingrid, can you just translate that for us? Could you read? <laughs> so we'll do that. Uh, now for the students I introduce, I start the conference in a sort of jokey way with a, a comedy sketch from a TV show that introduces the, the whole idea of people debating about God and the fact that you need... To actually have an argument rather than just sharing your viewpoint, um, but to to uh, hasten things along, let me just start with this uh, photo of a mug that appeared on my Twitter stream the other week. Uh, you to read this: uh, "Penguins, penguins can't fly. I can't fly. Therefore, I'm a penguin." <laughs> now, see, now you all intuitively get the joke. That wasn't hard. Logic at at a basic level is not hard. You got the joke because you know intuitively how an argument should work. You know logic already. And you notice that that didn't fit the pattern that it should have done. (laughs) Something weird has gone wrong here. And that makes it funny. Um, So at one level, basic logic is just intuitive to you. But it's one thing for something to be intuitive you, for you, another for you to actually think consciously about it, to, re- to reflect upon it consciously, so that you can, uh, you can think more about it and become better at it. Uh, and that's what we'll uh, be able to do in our time this morning. We live as, uh, anyone this is, know where this is? Have um, been there? It's Times Square in New York. But yeah, it looks like pretty much any... I mean, you could come across bits of London that look like that these days, with the big advertising hoardings and the lighting and everything. More so than ever, we live in a culture that gives other people opportunities to try and persuade us of things. And particularly in just the last generation, you know. I'm, I'm old enough to sort of pre-exist Twitter and text messaging and mobile phones and um, yeah, you know, I, I remember when I started out writing um, I, I, got, I upgraded from a typewriter to an electronic typewriter. <laughs> <sighs> it had a screen. It was about this big black and white, you could see one line of text at a time but you could scroll backwards and forwards between it and make changes before you printed it. You didn't need Tippex anymore. You didn't need whiteout. And, wow, the most amazing thing was if you put a floppy disk in, <laughs> it w- you, could, you could store on a floppy disk, I mean, at least a chapter <laughs> yeah. yeah. you know the save icon <laughs> the save icon that used to be an actual thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> so <laughs> But now, not only advertising hoardings and television and and, and magazines, but we're carrying these devices with us that let people, you know, give us uh, words and sounds and pictures and colour and everything, Uh, a lot of which is about influencing us to to think this, commit to that, buy the other, do this, don't do that, support this cause, vote for me, don't vote for them, etc. Uh, Believe in God, don't believe in God. The whole range of things, from shampoo through to spirituality. Um, And we have to be able to think critically in such a culture, because if we don't, we just get swept away by whoever has the biggest advertising budget. And being persuaded of something just because someone could afford the best advert for it. (laughs) It's not necessarily the best way of making up your mind, at least on the big important things in life. Um, A few years ago in the UK there was a big storm, the British Humanist Society hired the sides of these uh, buses uh, around the place and put on this um, rather bizarre uh, advert, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. I'm not sure what the connection meant to be. But anyway, it was quite fun, Uh, Bjorn was saying um, I took part a few years ago in a debate at uh, Cambridge uh, University where I was paired up with um, Bill Craig against uh, someone from the British Humanist Association and another philosopher. Uh, And during that tour, um, we were trying to arrange for a debate between um, Bill Craig, who's an American Christian philosopher, and Richard Dawkins uh, here, who's probably the most famous British uh, atheist at the moment. Um, zoologist uh, turned kind of author of uh, his, his book *The God Delusion*, you may have heard of, because it was a bestseller. And uh, Dawkins wouldn't wouldn't debate, and uh, gave various excuses for not wanting to debate Bill. And uh, and, and in the end, we kind of empty chaired him, you know. And we said, you can turn up until the last minute; we'll keep a chair for you. And if you don't turn mm-hmm. up, Bill, will just give a lecture. And we had a a panel of other. Uh, academics uh, ready to respond and so we hired the size of buses in Oxford and, and we put on a, an advert on the size of the buses in Oxford that said uh, there's probably no Dawkins <laughs> 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 but come to the lecture at the Sheldon Uni Theatre the <laughs> anyway so that was fun <laughs> so let me um, not shampoo but, uh, hair colouring in this instance let me show you an, an, an advert from a couple of years ago and as you watch this advert, I want you to try and, and, and think, what are, they, what are the advertisers really telling me? What's really being communicated to me here? I'll show you the advert and then give you a bit of time to discuss among yourselves before we give um, some, some group feedback. You know, what messages are coming through uh, this attempt to persuade you to buy uh, Clairol hair colouring? Okay. Yeah. So, what do we think? There's probably multiple messages that are coming through here. What did you uh, unearth? So, thinking about the messages being communicated now. Yeah. Create yourself and your own value. Right. Create your own value. Yeah. Your value as a person is something under your control. Uh, and you can increase your value as a person by spending your money in the right way. Okay. Yeah. Now, of course, any advert that came along and said that <laughs> would, would start people thinking, "What, really? You're... But yeah, that's what it's really saying. Yeah.: I hear, "You are not good enough as you are." Yes. Yeah. Very good. So they're pretending to be helpful. Look how we will help you to increase your value. But what they're actually doing is, first of all, saying, you don't have enough value as you are. <coughs> so they try and create a desire in you that they can then ride to the rescue on their white stallion and the knight in shining armour. It's, like, <laughs> it's a bit like the knight in shining armour tying you up for the dragon to come <laughs> along and eat. <laughs> so that they can then ride to the rescue, so that you're all thankful that... Hmm. Mm, again, Odd. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah?
0: Yeah, we were talking about how you increase your value out of the outwardly Mm -hmm. appearance Mm -hmm. that will increase your value on the inside. Right. As a Christian, we know our value on our inside. Mm. That's why we can meet the world just yeah. as it is without yes. fear, we know our value from the inside, and then we can meet the world without yeah. outwardly appearance. Yeah, yeah. It just twists everything.
1: Yes, so there's a, a, a contrast there from a Christian spirituality in which our value comes from the inside out, as it were, and a secular worldview where your value comes from the outside in. Your value comes from being a, a, a member of the capitalist machine, yeah. Yeah. And I, I love the red shoes. <laughs> the red shoes are key. Yes. I would very much
0: like to buy them. But I think yeah. this kind of uh, says to me you don't dare to buy the red shoes. You have grey right. <laughs> Yeah. You
1: don't have you're not you're not worthy of buying the red shoes. The lady in the shop looking down her nose, oh, don't you dare come in my shoe boutique. You're not the right, you know, and you're not valuable enough, a member of society, to own these lovely shoes. But, oh, hang on, I coloured my, I coloured my hair. <laughs> I am brave enough to buy shoes. <laughs> like, Yeah. And then that lovely scene at the end as well, it's all in the storytelling, isn't it? She walks away on the shoes now. And the casting director has picked all the other people in the scene to be shorter than her now. So she's standing out, stand out from the crowd. Be more of an individual and stand out from the crowd by buying this mass-produced, mass-marketed product. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And again, if adverts actually said that to you, <laughs> it would be too obvious and you would notice the trick. So it's just—it's full of tricks, it's full of manipulation, Uh, it's full of messages that when you actually stop to think about them are actually deeply problematic. Um, But of course most people don't stop to think about them and that's why adverts work, you just get swept up in the story, in the illustration, carried along by the little soap opera that they tell you in a in a minute, and you think, oh yeah, I'd like my life to be like that, I'll go and buy some, well why Clairol hair colouring, why won't Boots own brand do, you know, <laughs> this advert isn't answering questions like that, there are very few adverts that actually tell you anything about the product that they're selling, very occasionally they do, you know, but, uh, yeah. So there is a, a key difference here between just asserting something uh, through a, an illustration, a story, or just boldly saying something is true. Colour your hair red and you'll become a braver, more valuable person. Really? Um, and actually arguing for it. And by arguing, because it's an ambiguous word, we'll come across ambiguity again later on, uh, we don't mean... What? You? Come on then. I'm not arguing. I'm simply explaining why I'm right, as <laughs> the t-shirt says. Um, an argument doesn't mean having to become you know, red in the face and hot under the collar. An argument is a set of statements that are linked together logically to lead to a conclusion. An assertion is just a statement. An argument, you have more than one statement... They have to be linked together in the right way so that those statements lead you to a conclusion. And then you have an argument. To put it in slightly more technical language, as Bill Craig puts it, an argument is a set of statements which serve as premises leading to a conclusion. So in an argument you have a conclusion, which is a statement about reality that you're arguing for. And the statements that precede that, on the basis of which you argue for the conclusion, they're called the premises of the argument, just to distinguish them, just to highlight what are we arguing for. <coughs> I'm going to go back to that one. No,
0: just repeat it. I follow up two seconds. Can you just repeat the sentence yourself.
1: Yeah. So um, and our, the, the statement that's being argued for is called the conclusion. The, the preceding statements, on the basis of which you're arguing for that conclusion, those preceding statements are called the premises of the argument. And they will need to be more than one, so there'll be premise one, premise two, and it's an argument that says the combination of these things should lead you to believe this thing, the conclusion of the argument. Um, Aristotle's always been, already been uh, mentioned because he wrote the first textbook on this uh, back in the 4th century BC. So here's a, a typical kind of example that you'd learn in Logic 101 although I can't, no one actually finds this in the works of Aristotle but this is always the example given. Um, Socrates who was another ancient Greek chap. Uh, Socrates is a human that's one premise one statement here's another premise another statement all humans die now it's the com- it's from the combination of these two statements that should lead you to believe the conclusion therefore socrates will die if socrates is a human and all humans die then Will Socrates die? Yes, he will. Because he's a human and all humans die, you see. So it's linking these truth claims together to support the conclusion of the argument. Or putting it a little bit more visually, anytime you have these, a number of truth claims linked together in the right way to point to a conclusion. Uh, and we give a different illustration. Yeah. Can I just, yeah please
0: I'm do. Uh, oh, yeah.
1: grant um, Here's a slightly weird illustration uh, with me and a steam train. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha. sound logic, and that allows you to mount your train of argument from A to B. But just as one section of track is rarely enough to get you to your destination, so a single syllogism is rarely enough to carry the whole argument you want to make. A train relies upon many sections of track, carefully laid together one after another. A train of argument relies upon a series of syllogisms carefully connected one to another, to carry the argument from its first premise all the way through to its concluding destination. So I've introduced another technical Greek term here, syllogism, that just means that the shortest unit of argument you can have, like the shortest bit of train track in your train set box, and the shortest unit of argument you can have has two premises leading to a conclusion. Two premises, conclusion, Socrates is a human, all humans die, therefore Socrates will die. That's a syllogism. Uh, But often in order to argue something you need to connect multiple syllogisms together. Uh, And just like connecting bits of train track together to get your train from where where you are to where you want it to be, you need to connect these little units of argument together to make a longer argument. And any time you see a great big long argument, if it's if it's one that works, it should break down, you should be able to chop it up into these little sort of atomic units of argument, these little train track units of argument called syllogisms. So for example, if you have one syllogism, one argument, premise, premise, conclusion, you can, if you like, treat that as Well, conclusion number one, that sort of sub-conclusion. If you carry that forward, like in maths, you treat that conclusion of one argument as the first premise of another unit of argument. Add in a new premise, you'll get out a second conclusion. And then you could treat that conclusion as a premise in another argument, and so on, until you've argued everything you need to argue, as it were. So we could extend the previous example. We've got this conclusion, but now let's treat that conclusion as a premise. Socrates will die. Add in the information that dead bodies decompose, you will get out the conclusion that one day Socrates' body will decompose. New, new bit of uh, thing that you've argued. Now most of the you notice I've put this in green because this is the bit that's kind of information that's repeating. And usually when people argue a great big long thing, they won't bother to make it really clear where the little units are. So often you you might come across something that says uh, Socrates is human, all humans die, dead bodies decompose. Therefore Socrates' body will decompose. But you have to be able to then look at that and break it up into, oh, hang on a minute, that that's quite a long argument. That must break up into these little syllogism units. What are the units? Well, here's one, and then they're carrying forward that information, so here's another, and you break it up into those little se- sections of train track. Uh, let me show you a filmic example, which you can uh, have a little think and discuss about and then we'll work out together as a group uh, what the argument is. This is a, it's an oldie but a goodie, Jim Carrey in the comedy film Liar, Liar, which has the cynical premise uh, that uh, how on earth would you do the job of being a, a lawyer if you couldn't lie? Um, he's under a magical curse in this film, which means he literally cannot lie uh, for a whole day. And yet he's in a court case and he's got to win the court case. And he's representing a, a lady in a divorce proceedings. Uh, and uh, she's a rich American, so she'd married this rich American guy, and they had a prenuptial agreement, a bit of legal contract in addition to the, the standard marriage contract. That's okay. And uh, her agreement in this case said, normally if we get divorced because say, I've cheated on you, uh, Uh, get divorced we would get half of the estate half of the money each split everything 50-50 but you know I'm going to sign this contract that says if I cheat on you and you can prove that I've cheated on you and you divorce me because I've cheated then I don't get any money okay so it's stopping um, you know being a gold digger yeah now This lady has cheated, and it's already been proven at this stage that she's cheated. Nevertheless, Jim Carrey's lawyer is going to get her half of the money. And he can't lie to do it, so he's got to use a good argument. So I'll show you, the clip's got a bit of a build-up, and then he launches into it, he gets a bright idea, and he goes, aha! And he makes this argument in the court and wins the case. And it's an argument that's made up of two... And you'll see on your, your worksheet an, an outline of that argument where we've given you the first premise and the ultimate conclusion that he's arguing for that she should get half of the money uh, from the breakup of the marriage.
0: Okay. The pre agreement is only valid if she's over eight, she was over 18.
1: Okay, That's when she when she signed that agreement. Okay. So <laughs> we're helping out there. We've we've shown you where he launches into the argument and where he gets to, we're, and together we will try and fill out the missing bits. Because um, to use another analogy, making an argument is a bit like trying to get across a stream using stepping stones. Um, it's too, it's too far to the other side. I can't get there without getting wet if I don't use stepping stones. If I use stepping stones, the same principle a- a- applies. Each, each step has to be within reach. Kay? So I need, I need my first premise and my second premise, which together has to lead to this conclusion. They've each step has to lead to the next one. And then I'm, I'm only halfway there now. I want to get. I want to get to that conclusion. So I need. or I need another premise. <laughs> and then using this one as the first one in a new argument. Premise, premise, conclusion. Oh, I've reached the other side safely. You see. Uh, so it's. We uh, were going step by step. Now here we are, Jim Carrey in Liar, Liar, um, unable to lie. <laughs> uh, <it's> still great. <laughs> So um, take a little moment to have a think about that. Look at the, uh, the argument outline we've got there and start thinking, OK, how did he get from one bank of the river to the other? What were the steps in the, that mattered in what he said in that, in that legal argument? the best. <laughs> okay. Okay, so we've got the first premise. This uh, prenuptial agreement is only valid if she was over the age of 18, eighteen or over when she signed it. We've got that one. What's the the next stepping stone? The next premise in the argument? What's the next crucial bit of information? Yeah. Right, she was not a, over 18. She wasn't over 18. She was only 17, you could say. Um, those statements basically mean the same thing for the purposes of the argument. You don't have to get the, the wording exact. It's the, the bit of information that's important. Yeah? Okay, so the prenuptial agreement's only valid if she was over 18 when she signed it. She wasn't over 18 when she signed it. She was only 17 or whatever. That, those two premises lead you to a conclusion of the first syllogism. So what, what conclusion follows from those two statements? Yeah. The agreement wasn't uh, legal. Right, okay, the prenuptial agreement was not valid. It's not valid. It's not legally binding, whatever, something like that. Okay, so we're halfway there. This is good. So we carry that forward, that conclusion forward. We now treat that as the first premise of a new Second syllogism, yeah. So here we go. Uh, the prenuptial agreement's not valid, and then something else, some other stepping stone has to be there for us to get to the to the conclusion, to the other bank, to the conclusion that therefore she gets half of the half of the money, half the assets from the, <coughs> So what what statement has to go in the middle there to get us from one to the other? Yeah. I guess it's. To get the assets, uh, the, the agreement needs to be uh, in order or or functional. Uh, to be valid. Well, the actually, yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of you're on the right track. It's the reverse that the, the the standard marriage rules need to apply. Mm-hmm. So the so this this prenuptial agreement that says that they wouldn't if it was valid mm-hmm. has to not apply. So it's actually that. Um, the prenup agreement's not valid, but and of course, and of course, without a valid prenup getting in the way of the standard rules operating, she should get half of the, the money. So I've put I've put without a valid prenup, she gets half of the half of the assets. And then you can see that from those two uh, the prenup's not valid. Uh, without a valid prenup, she gets half of the money. Because the standard marriage contract applies, you get to the final conclusion she, she should get half of the assets. Yeah. Okay. okay it's, 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 it's not really hard. It's a bit, uh, do you have the word, how would you translate, pedantic, a bit just taking care to go gradually, step by step. Um, you have to think about it a little bit, but it's, it's not really hard. Uh, and it's just a matter of, like any skill, um, it's one thing to like learn the rules of, uh, you know, how do you, um, how do you play the flute? I used to play the flute. It's like, well, when there's a little black dot in these lines there, you put your fingers in this position and go, okay, uh, uh, but when the dot's there, you put your fingers in that position and go... You know, you, you know learn that sort of 16 times or whatever. Um, and you're off and away, aren't you? I know how to play flute now. Well, okay, yeah. Sort of. But I've got to practice doing it well. I've got to practice doing it quicker. I've got to practice doing it with gradually more complicated bits of music and so on. It's like that with logic. Uh, these basic rules They're intuitive, you can get them, but it's a matter of remembering them and and applying them in different situations, getting more used to using them and using them in gradually more kind of complex situations. But just to be able to know, you know, premise, premise, conclusion, if the argument seems longer than that, it must break down into these these units. And I just got to think, you know, where's he starting from? Where's she getting to? How did they get from one to the other? Did each step follow? And so on. Um, so after coffee break, we'll go into a little bit more of the detail of what needs to go right about an argument and what can go wrong. because obviously, having two premises and a conclusion, you need them. They're necessary for a good argument, but they're not enough. They're not sufficient. Because of, like that penguin example, here's another jokey example: uh, football's around, onions around. therefore footballs are onions. Now I've got two premises leading to a conclusion. But obviously, something's gone wrong here. You need more to go right with an argument than simply having two premises and a conclusion. And after coffee break, we'll find out what that is. Great. Well, thank you so much, ladies and gents. Some very good uh, questions and discussions uh, with some of you over the the break. You're thinking uh, good thoughts about these things. Uh, So here's a little video with a friend of mine and some breadsticks in a coffee shop, uh, which you will think about uh, ever after when you think about these rules for uh, how does a syllogism, how does an argument work uh, properly. There are these three rules that you need to learn. Uh, A good argument is one that passes all of them and a bad one is one that fails to pass any of them. And and here's uh, Luke with uh, his breadsticks. Maybe argument words must have three solid building blocks. Thank you. First, it must be logically valid, which means its logic must work. Second, it must have true premises, and third, it must have non-ambiguous terms, which means the words the argument relies on must not have a double meaning. However, if one of these is broken. And the whole structure falls down. And you know, I'm thinking, how many takes did he have to do that before getting the breadsticks to stay there? Yeah. So you'll see there's, on your handout there's a flowchart diagram and this is just the left-hand side of that flowchart diagram. That flowchart diagram is the tonic essence of this morning's material um, because it takes you through the three questions to ask of any argument to see if it's a good one or not and takes you through them step by step uh, and if you apply that flowchart diagram to any argument it will guide you through the questions to ask yourself to see whether you think it's a good one or not so the the three that Luke was mentioning here are the uh, are the premises clear and particularly are they an- unambiguous do you understand what's being claimed an argument is not going to do anything for you if you don't even understand what's being claimed. So if you read the poetry of Lewis Carroll in uh, Alice in uh, Through the Looking Glass and you read the statement that it was brillig and the slithy toes did gyre and gimble in the wabe, uh, any argument based upon that premise is not going to do anything for you because you don't know what on earth he's saying until you read the rest of the book and you find out the definitions of all of those things that he's made up, okay? And then you would know uh, whether uh, you know, what, uh, what uh, experiences you could have that could prove or disprove it, and so on. So do you understand, and um, this uh, thing of ambiguity we'll come back to as well. Secondly, the logic, does the conclusion really follow on from the premises of the argument? Oh, the, the statements before the conclusion that are supporting the conclusion, does the conclusion follow on from the previous statements? And are all of the statements, all the truth claims, all of the premises of that argument, are they true? Uh, which is um, often the hardest uh, question. But if you ask these two questions and you're pretty confident about saying yes to all of them, then you should be pretty confident that that argument is uh, sound, like we might say a soundly constructed boat. is one that will take you dry in the dry from one bank to the other. A soundly constructed argument uh, does the same in logical terms. That might not settle the issue for you, because in ar- in arguing about things, it's w- we often end up weighing up arguments against each other, saying who has the strongest argument for something, <coughs> like in a court of law. Um, but even to kind of uh, feature in your weighing up of arguments to be worthy of being put in one of the balance pans of your weighing scales. Uh, an argument at least has to pass these three tests and have some strength to it. So a sound argument has these features of uh, uh, not using uh, ambiguity, it has unambiguous terms, it has valid logic, the conclusion follows, it has true premises, which means an unsound argument is one where any one of those three features goes wrong. So if it does uh, play upon ambiguity of terminology, if the conclusion doesn't follow, if any one or more of the premises are wrong, so there's more ways for an argument to go wrong than for it to go right. Unfortunately, there's only one way of it going right, <laughs> uh, by by fulfilling all three of those conditions. Yeah. Can you uh,
0: define some big rules?
1: I will indeed. <laughs> Let me do so. <laughs> uh, after this slide, I will uh, define them all with concrete examples. Yes. Yeah.
0: Give us a... I don't understand the word. Tver ttudik. Unambiguous,
1: tver Not having two different meanings. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, so any of these questions, the answer, whether or not you know the answer, you might be, you might say, I don't know. But the answer in, in actuality is either yes or no. Um, So that either they're true or they're not. Either the conclusion does follow or it doesn't, and so on. And then you get the whole uh, flowchart there. So let me illustrate those three ways in which things can go wrong. Ambiguity, when something has more than one meaning and you use that to mislead. So um, here is uh, Groucho Marx, not Karl Marx, who founded Marxism. Groucho Marx, the American comedian from the Marx Brothers uh, and a brief clip from the film uh, Monkey Business from 1931 where he, uh, he hasn't gone on safari but he's pretending that he's been on safari and he makes uh, this joke at a house party.
0: One morning I shot an elephant in my pyjamas.
1: How he got in my pyjamas, I don't know. Thank you, Groucho. One morning I shot an elephant in my pyjamas. How the elephant got in my pyjamas, I'll never know. See, so there's an ambiguity in the statement, not to kill the, the humour here, but there's an ambiguity in the statement, one morning I shot an elephant in my pyjamas. It could mean, one morning I was in my pyjamas when I shot an elephant. It would usually mean that. But you could take it as meaning, one morning an elephant was wearing my pyjamas when I shot it. And that's silly. And by interpreting the statement in the silly way, the unexpected way, it becomes humorous. A bit, at least. <laughs> <laughs> so you can end up with ambiguity doing things like this. You look for repeated terms in an argument and you say, uh, OK, interesting, this, this premise and this premise both have the word plane in them as a repeated term i just checked that they're not using ambiguity to mislead me. Does that term mean the same thing when it repeats? And here it doesn't. So, premise, a plane is a carpenter's tool. Here it is, you use it for planing flat, a wooden surface, so you don't get splinters, plane. Exactly the same word in English is used to refer to this kind of thing, a plane. Um, So the second premise here, the Boeing 747 is a plane, and of course from those two premises I can draw whichever conclusion I like. (laughs) This doesn't constrain me to one conclusion. Here I've said therefore the Boeing 747 is a carpenter's tool. But of course equally I could have said therefore uh, a carpenter's tool is a Boeing 747. Which is also not true. (laughs) Um, By trading on this double meaning of this word, you can't rely upon the conclusion. Invalid logic, when the conclusion just doesn't follow. The question to just ask yourself here is, as you're going through an argument, what conclusion should follow on from those premises? So if I say, look, okay, as a general rule, high-fat foods are bad for you, not particularly good uh, to live on high-fat foods all the time. Uh, look, some yoghurt is high in fat. Um, therefore, all yoghurt is bad for you. And what, what's gone wrong? You just think, well, what conclusion should follow from those two premises? If it's true that high-fat foods are bad for you, and if it's true that some yoghurt is high in fat, then what conclusion is true? Yeah? You may have forgotten some in, in the conclusion.
0: <laughs>
1: right. Absolutely. Yeah, so this, this should say... Therefore, some yoghurt is bad for you. But that's not what it says. It says all yoghurt. And you can't make a conclusion about all yoghurt based on information about some yoghurt. So the conclusion doesn't follow. That's so invalid logic. And finally, sorry to shatter your illusions with uh, with this, this one, but... Uh, Supposing I said, look, I I only eat, I have a diet that consists entirely of broken biscuits. Uh, This is part of my new health drive, because when you break a biscuit, all the calories leak out. (laughs) So because I only eat broken biscuits, and because all the calories leak out of broken biscuits, uh, therefore I'm not eating any calories when I eat those biscuits. Now... Look, the term uh, broken biscuits reoccurs, broken biscuits reoccurs in this argument. But it's not, there's no ambiguity because it means the same thing. Broken biscuits in both instances means something like that. And this, this argument is logically valid. This is a logically valid argument in that the conclusion does follow from the premises. If it's true that I only eat broken biscuits. And if it's true that such biscuits contain no calories, then it absolutely must be true that I'm not eating any calories. The thing, obviously, that's gone wrong with this argument, unfortunately, for all of us, uh, well, not only is it not true that I only eat broken biscuits, I do eat other things. But also, um, broken biscuits do contain calories. The calories don't leak out of them when you break them. So it's got false premises, both of them are false. And therefore, it's not a sound argument. So, there's some illustrations. Let me go and, and to s- run through some exercises with you as a group. And we'll start with some sort of jokey arguments because jokier ones c- kind of give you a tip off sometime to something's gone wrong here. Uh, that's what the humour relies on. And then we'll, we'll morph into some more serious, kind of apologetics kind of arguments. So think about this, is this a good argument? All goldfish can ride bicycles. You are a goldfish, therefore you can ride bicycles. Now do not be misled by thinking to yourself, mm, I can ride a bicycle. You, you can't reverse arguments like that. Just because you can uh, ride a bicycle doesn't mean that necessarily you are uh, a goldfish. So, first of all, is this a good argument? Is this a sound argument? No. Something's gone wrong with it. One, One of those three ways of going wrong that I illustrated has gone wrong. What do you think has gone wrong with this argument? Yeah. False premises. premises. Yeah. Um, Indeed, as far as I know, both of those premises are wrong. Goldfish can't ride bicycles, and you are not a goldfish. Don't have an existential crisis here today. (laughs) (laughs) This one's a bit trickier. When it rains, the pavement gets wet. The pavement is wet. Therefore, conclusion, it MUST have rained. So, is that right? And if it's not right, what's gone wrong with it? One of those three ways of going going wrong. When it rains, the pavement gets wet, the pavement is wet, so it must have rained. Yeah. Right, okay. So, it, it, to put it another way, you could say, but there are other reasons why the pavement could be wet. Not just rain makes pavements wet. I could have come along with a watering can, um, or a hose pipe, or a bucket of water, uh, or there could have been uh, a fire hydrant uh, leak, or a fire hydrant and a dog, or all sorts of reasons. Right, I think I one through, why the pavement could be wet other than it having rained. What, all you could really say is, uh, when it rains, the pavement gets wet. The pavement is wet, so I suppose raining is one of the reasons that why the pavement might be wet. That could explain it. But there are other things as well I'll have to go and investigate. I'll have to ask people, did it rain earlier? Did you see anyone with a watering can? We'll have to do some science to work out which of the possibilities we can think of is the best explanation. So right. The first premise is to conclusive. Well, the first premise, yeah, I suppose the, the p- when it rains the pavement gets wet unless someone has put a tarpaulin down over the pavement, <laughs> for example. I, I, could have, I could stop the rain getting on the pavement through some method, so that's not necessarily always true, is it? Um, yeah, so yeah, it, c- it could be... Uh, very good one. It could be false premises as well as uh, this not really following, which w- is invalid logic. So it may- could be multiple things wrong with an argument. Uh, so that's a good point. I'm trying to give arguments that only make one one mistake, but uh, mm. <laughs> how about uh, this? This is a nice tricky one. Um, I'm washing the car using a sponge. Sp- a sponge is a thing that grows in the sea. Therefore, I'm washing the car using something that grew in the sea. So I'm washing the car using a sponge, a, a sponge is a thing that grows in the sea, sponges. So I must be I'm washing the car using something that grew in the sea. Yeah. No, no, I'm big, I'm big, Yes, ambiguous terms, yeah. So this repeated term here, sponges, and I've, I've tried to mislead you by giving you a picture of a man-made, uh, a synthetic sponge. But of course, the kind of sponges that grow in the sea, a little marine organism, like, and not the kind of thing that you would wash the car with, that probably ruin the paintwork if you tried to loofer the, the car instead of yourself in the shower. Um, different types of sponges, yeah ambiguity of terms so let's get a little bit more into apologetics now you may have heard people um, argue something along these lines Um, look anything you can't detect directly with your physical senses anything you can't see if I can't see it or hear it or smell it or taste it or touch it I'm not going to believe in it people say anything you can't detect directly with your physical senses doesn't exist or you shouldn't believe in Um, But God can't be um, detected directly with your physical senses. You can't taste God, can't smell whether or not God's in the room, you know. So, of course, he doesn't exist, or it's silly to believe in God, because you can't detect him with your physical senses. What do you think might be wrong with that kind of argument? Do think, you think through those three questions in the flowchart diagram, is there ambiguity of terms, does the conclusion follow, if those premises were true, would that conclusion be true, are the premises true? I, I see a ha- hand going up, I'm trying to give someone else an opportunity to stick a hand up. A finger? Yeah. Yes, marvellous. I just wondered if you were scratching um, your yeah. nose or something. Uh, yeah, the, first the, first not true. the first premise is not true. So the, the claim that anything that can't be detected directly by our physical senses does not exist is not true. Yeah, otherwise things can be real without being directly detectable by the physical senses. Even in science, that empirical subject, we talk a lot about all sorts of things that can't be detected directly with physical senses you know quarks has anyone tasted a quark or a lepton recently did anyone you know see the big bang you smell the big bang recently you know but people believe in things because they're the best explanation of the things that we do taste and touch and see and so on and maybe maybe it's like that for god or maybe it's it's reasonable to believe things that don't have any connection at all with the physical senses i mean I've been teaching you about this basic logic of structure that an argument has to have. Um, You just intuitively get that. You don't see, literally, that logic works. You can't taste or smell or feel that an argument has the right structure to work. But you couldn't do any arguing about physical things unless you knew about logic. So you can you can know about things that are real, that are true, that don't have anything to do with the physical senses. Um, Classic atheist argument for God, the logical problem of evil. Uh, Something objectively evil, really independently of what we think and feel and so on, evil exists. Premise: God couldn't possibly coexist with anything objectively evil. Therefore God does not exist. I've just disproven your faith. Or have I? Well only if this argument's not a good argument. That means unless you can find one of those three ways of an argument going wrong that this argument falls into, you should all stop being Christians, yeah? So give up on the study tour and go home or just, you know, go shopping or something. Buy Bicleral hair colouring and stuff (laughs) like that. So what's, if anything, is wrong with that argument? Yeah? Uh, Are there anything, if so, uh, uh, are there anything objectively evil? Right, the argument assumes that, so you could say there's nothing objectively evil or wrong, right or wrong. Um, that would lead you into other problems with Christianity, though, because then I could, I could mount the argument that um, Christianity is only true if uh, people are sinners, which means that we do things that are objectively wrong that we need forgiving for. Um, but there's nothing that's subjectively right or wrong, everything's relative, therefore Christianity is not true. So you, would, you could disarm this argument that way, but then you might raise a, another one, you see. Or there can only be a God, if, if there is a God, by definition he's the kind of being who is all good. And by good I mean, you know, not just I happen to like him, <laughs> but good with a capital G. Okay, well, how, how about this? I could say, um, similar, false premise. Look, th- they've got this premise in there, the second premise, that God and evil couldn't possibly coexist. It's just not possible for God and evil to coexist. I don't think that's true. For example, what if uh, a particular evil were a necessary means to uh, a greater good? Uh, it's a bit, it's, the argument. This argument's a bit like saying... Um, you know, it's a bad thing to saw people's legs off. So anyone who saws goes around sawing off people's legs, must be a really bad person. Okay? Well, yeah, unless they're a war surgeon during the Crimean War and the soldier with the leg has got a wound and it's festering because you haven't got antibiotics and they're going to die unless you cut their leg off. Then chopping their leg off is a, a necessary means to something really good, and it's only really good people who dedicate themselves to going to battlefields and saving people's lives by chopping their legs off. So it's it's not a necessarily true principle that a good thing and a bad thing can't coexist in the same space, as it were, Um, and the argument depends upon that premise to work. So indeed, you can, you can turn this problem of evil around. You say, look, you, you do, as you say, you're, you're assuming that there are things that are objectively right and wrong. So let's take that premise and make it a premise in an argument for God, indeed. This might be where you were, were going. You could say, OK, yeah, yeah, there are things that are objectively evil. But look, something objectively evil exists, but if anything objectively evil exists, then that's a good reason to believe that a good God exists. So the existence of something evil is actually evidence for the existence of God. And you can say, well, why should I believe that that crucial second premise? You say, well, without a good, capital G, God, what what standard, what, what rule, if you like, are you measuring things against to say whether or not they really are good or bad? Because you're not just saying, oh, I happen to like it. You're saying, no, it really does... It really is good. It's like saying this, to say this table really is a meter long. Well, well what is a meter? Well, it, it, there's a standard definition of a meter. There's an actual, you know, meter stick kept in the French National Museum. and It's like that is, that was, well this is the standard of what we mean. It's like that for morality. Um, God is, not just that he's, he's a good person kind of thing, is the good to be like God? Is to be good. To fall short of being like God is to not be as good. <laughs> um, and in morality, it's saying you know this is the right thing to do, this is the wrong thing to do. You, you're, you're obligated to do this. You're obligated not to do that. What's obligating you? Um, you need some sort of transcendent source of moral obligation. I'm not obligated by material things, or by my evolutionary history, or, uh, and so on. But if there's a transcendent good person who can obligate my behavior, then that would explain moral obligation, and so on. So you can turn around the problem of evil argument into, a, a, a li- if you like, a, a, a moral argument f- for God. Um, here's a bit of a trick question here's an argument atheists sometimes will tell you in their books that this is how Christians argue for God of course it's not or it shouldn't be they say look people argue like this everything has a cause the universe is a thing therefore the universe had a cause and that must be God right? Is that is that a good argument for God, or does something go wrong here? It's God, not a thing. It's God not a thing. What do we mean by a thing? Yeah. Um, the first premise that has uh, a weak fundament a wrong fundament. Okay. The first, we calling into question the first premise here. Indeed, if we use that first premise, we're immediately going to open ourselves up to the question, okay, so what caused God? Because you've, 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 you've said that everything has a cause. So if God is a thing, we can go into that issue, but if God's a thing, then he'd need a cause, wouldn't he? And I suppose the cause of God would need a cause, because everything had a cause. It's just infinite causing. All the way back to, well, not all the way back to anything, just all the way back, and back, and back, and back, and back, and back, and back. And back, and back. So actually, yeah, um, this premise, demanding that everything has a cause, leads, actually leads to an infinite regress, and actually that seems to be deeply problematical. It's like, it's like, actually, you're always pushing off explaining the existence of something, rather than explaining it by saying, well, this caused it, yeah, but only because that was caused by that. And only because that, because that, and only because... This would cause this if it existed to cause it. But why does it exist? Well, because well, it it would exist if this previous thing existed Mm. to cause it. Which would exist if, which would exist if, you know. But you never actually get to something that has existence, able to give it, without receiving it. (laughs) That's kind of what you need for this regress of causality to stop. So actual, proper so-called cosmological arguments, tend to go more like this. They tend to say, look, there's at least one type of thing that exists that does have a cause. Well, there are, there are things that exist that are the kind of things that do need causes. I'm not claiming that everything needs cause. I'm saying there are things that need causes, like universes maybe, or you or me, or tables, or whatever. Um, and then actually you, you use the denial of that Premise, everything has a cause. You're actually, the denial of that premise is saying, it's impossible for everything to be caused. Which, of course, is the atheist's point in that straw man version of the cosmological argument. They're saying, when they say, oh, okay, you say, you know, everything has a cause, so that proves God. Well, what caused God? They're pointing out that it's, it's, it's a problem to use that premise, everything has a cause. So, okay, let's agree with the atheist about that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. If I was arguing that, that would be a great comeback. You're right. We can't use the principle that everything has a cause. In other words, not everything has to have a cause. But look, there are some things that do have causes. But as you say, not everything can have a cause. So there must be something, mustn't there, that causes things, but which doesn't have a cause. Now we're getting closer down the track to an argument for God, because we say, well, what type of thing would that be? It would be a very different type of thing than the physical things that we experience around us. It would be a different type of thing than than a, a universe, the, the cosmos. So on. We could, if you trace back the Big Bang, you're basically saying, okay, we've got all these physical events. However, we cut them up, there was a first one, whatever. You know, minute, hour, second. There was a first one. There was um, an hour when there was no previous hour. A minute, as it were, of of time when there was no previous minute. So how are you cutting them up? You know, take a minute. So so what caused the first minute of the physical universe? Because physical events are things that we do know need causes. But if they need causes, what caused the first physical event? You can't say, well, the previous physical event. There wasn't one. So do you say, well, okay, the first one just it didn't need a cause. Like, what's different about that event that sort of suddenly absolves it from needing a cause? You get an argument that points towards some sort of transcendent cause, some sort of cause that itself doesn't need a cause. Something that causes everything else apart from itself. Now that's part of what people mean by God. So that's a a better way of putting it. And here, just to seek into what we're going to look at this afternoon, you'll often find uh, arguments that go like this. Look, it's irrational to believe something you read in the Bible, some sort of historical claim in the Old Testament historical books about David or whatever, kings and chronicles it's irrational to believe those claims in the bible without extra biblical evidence evidence from outside of the bible here's another premise look there, there is no evidence from outside the bible for say something like the historical existence of king david it's just a myth isn't it it's irrational to to believe in the historical existence of someone like king david because all you've got is, well, the Bible says it, but there's no evidence from outside the Bible that says the same thing. So it's unreasonable to believe in King David. You find this argument all over the place in the discussion about the Bible and archaeology. This sort of argument from, a, from an absence of evidence. But again, do you think that through, ask the three questions. Is that a good... Argument. Does something go wrong with this argument? Uh, Yes, but anyone else? (laughs) No? Okay, let's uh, go with you. Do we know all the evidence now? Are we familiar familiar with all the evidence? Is it all nugged up? Well, excellent question. So the question is, is all the evidence that exists, has it been dug up? So it could be true that there is evidence out there, outside the Bible. But why should we think that if if that evidence existed, that we would know about it by now? The the argument is assuming that if there is extra-biblical evidence, we must know about it already. Because obviously if you say, look, there's no extra-biblical evidence, so it's, it's, uh, it's stupid to believe in, in King David. King David probably never existed. And then you dig up something. You know, King David was here. <laughs> Not exactly that, but yeah. Then you'd, then you'd go, oh, uh, okay, we were wrong. Yes, egg all over our faces. Um, yeah, so there is a sort of, that argument from an absence of evidence They don't really work unless it's true that were that evidence to exist, we should expect to know about it. And that would require that we would basically dug up the whole (laughs) ancient Near East, which we haven't done for various reasons, like expense and um, people have wars and stop you going to their country to dig things up, or people live on top of things in houses and cities, and don't take kindly to you saying, like, move house so I can do an archaeological dig, please. <laughs> but maybe they're living on top of <laughs> the really exciting key bit of data that we won't discover for another 150 years because they're living there at the moment. You know. Yeah. So I, it, it, you can also say it's why should you think that it's irrational to believe what the Bible says? in the absence of extra-biblical evidence. Why believe that principle? Why not think it might be reasonable to believe something because the evidence that's been gathered between the covers of the Bible, what we call the Bible, says it. What's irrational about that? Um, Be like archaeologist who read the uh, the poetry of uh, you know Homer's Iliad which a long time ago people used to think oh it's just it's all just all mythology and there was the, this guy who actually took it seriously and said well okay this Homer's Iliad and the, the fighting at this city and so on I forget the name of it and he actually went there and found it and dug it up the city that's mentioned in the in in the Iliad he said look there it is because no one took the text seriously, no one went to look for the evidence. Um, so it's not necessarily irrational to take an ancient document like the Iliad and read it and go, "Well, maybe there's some truth to this, you know, at least the fundamentals. There's a lot of stuff in here about this city in a certain location, and so on. It might well have been a battle there. Now, he then went and got extra, extra, extra Iliad evidence as well. But historians all the time do history just with written documents. Um, and they don't say, well, it, it's, it's unreasonable to believe that uh, Julius Caesar did X, Y, or Z, because you've only got Julius Caesar's account of the Garlic, garlic Wars. Not the Garlic Wars, the Gaelic Wars. <laughs> the Garlic Wars, that was a whole other incident. Cooking and, yeah. Just be, you know, you can't believe something just because Julius Caesar said it in the Gaelic w- Wars. Of course, you have to read it critically and so on. But historians will generally, kind of, well, he was there at the time and <laughs> t- taking part, and probably was in a good position to know what he's talking about. And um, then you might say our arguments. Well, we you know we haven't dug up you know particular evidence about this thing that he says, but there are other things that he says that we know from extra Gaelic Wars data are reliable, he's proven reliable in other instances where we can test him so here's a bit thing that he says, well we can't you know, test him directly as it were but because we've, we've got this growing confidence in him as a as a reporter in the things we can test we, we come more and more to trust him in the things that we can't test um, so you don't need direct evidence, you might not even need indirect extra evidence uh, it might be rational to say, oh, this text says X, I'm going to believe X. Um, with testimony, again, the issue of burden of proof that I was talking to people about earlier. Um, someone walks through that door now and says, oh, dear, it's raining. It's really raining out there. We better take umbrellas later today. You know. Um, probably believe them. Um, you know, we haven't gone and have a look. Um, but do we have to go and look for ourselves in order to be reasonable in believing Bjorn if he comes in and says, oh, it's raining? And say, no, it's entirely reasonable to believe Bjorn, particularly if you've got some experience with the guy and knows that he tends to tell the truth and, <laughs> and so on, uh, even though in this particular instance we can't check him and so on. So, you know... What we trust in terms of information, and often the skeptics of the Bible start from a position of sort of, I'm not going to trust the Bible, and therefore I'm going to be skeptical about it Was says, because I haven't got information from, from another source. Spotlight. I'm not going to believe in the existence of Jesus because I mean all you've got is I don't know the letter of James from 45 AD written by Jesus' brother, and um, Paul writing in the 50s, sort of 20, 25 years after Jesus, writing uh, to churches, saying that he knows um, Peter and James and John and the four Gospels all written within the first century uh, and so on and so forth. But, you know, you can't believe that Jesus existed. You've only got the data in the the Bible, saying, because it's the Bible, because you trust it as a sacred text. Yeah, but I'm not necessarily saying Believe what the Bible says because it's a holy book, or because it's a book that some people think is a special sort of text from God. Set aside the question of whether or not it's, also, it's a special sort of text from God, what it undoubtedly is, what it's recognized to be by atheist historians and so on, is a set of documents written by people in the first century AD. <laughs> Um, who seem to know quite a lot about the culture of the first century AD where we can judge it by other sources of people writing at the time um, in ways that they probably wouldn't if they were just making it up in the second century as German 19th century liberal theologians used to think and so on and, and so on and getting to asking the standard historical questions about sources and saying well where where we can test what Luke says in Acts you know he says uh, various people that he and Paul come across um, have certain official job titles or certain names. Uh, do we know from other sources that he gets those right? Those little off, off the cuff, offhand details. You know, if you're in Cyprus then, then the head honcho is called an alderman, but if you're in Turkey, they're called a, a praetorate or whatever it is. You know. Um, actually we do the historical research we find he tends to get those things correct like he gets those little details correct wow um maybe he knows what he's talking about in the bigger things as well Um, and again building up a sense of confidence in a reporter just through purely secular kind of standard historical research and and questions so hopefully you you say let me do a bit of recap and see if you have any uh, questions and we might be able to uh, stop for lunch a little early and then perhaps we might start the afternoon a little early as well because don't want to just keep going for the sake of it but a bit of a recap started off talking about um, spirituality everybody has a, a spirituality, Christians have a particular Christ centred spirituality spirituality includes the trying to combine, pull together our head and our heart and our hands and part of our head is how we think about things, what we believe and assume about the world uh, and spirituality is, is communicated to other people through those standard elements of rhetoric that you've been learning about and we've we'll be, been focusing here on logic of course, Logos, beginning of John's Gospel um, communicate rational communication um, but it ties up with this broader picture of spirituality because spirituality is important uh, we do need to ask the question of, of our own spirituality, other people's spiritualities. Insofar as they're making truth claims about things, do we think that that's reliable? Is it true? If, can they argue for it? Can they give a good argument for it? What is a good argument? What's a bad one? And we've looked at these, the nature of a, an argument, having to have at least two premises, two statements that lead to a conclusion. And then building them together like a daisy chain or um, when you link bits of paper to make Christmas decorations or train track or whatever to make longer arguments and being able to analyse what someone says like Jim Carrey in a court he didn't stand up in front of the judge and say uh, my lord, my first premise You know, only philosophers tend to talk like that or write like that in their books you know. premise one point, you should read Wittgenstein it's all like 1.1, 1.2.3 subsection three. <laughs> it's very dry but you have to kind of, in a sense, philosophers are the experts in taking things very carefully, stepping stone at a time, and you get used to, as you use these, these tools to, to thinking in that way and getting practised with it, and thinking, looking at that, that flow chart diagram, having that in your mind mm-hmm. and thinking, is there a repeated term that's you know, playing a trick on me because of some double meaning, ambiguity in the language? Does that conclusion really follow from or should something else follow from those premises? Are all of those premises true? And actually that's usually the most controversial question. Because, you know, there's standard rules and canons of logic and you can you can find out you know is the, do you mean the same thing here or not pin someone down on it. Does this conclusion follow or not? We can kind of all see that. And um, use other examples to say If I use the same structure of argument, you know, does it work or not? Where people tend most to disagree, of course, is over the truth of the premises. Um, So is it true that you shouldn't believe something that the Bible says unless you've got evidence from outside the Bible for it as well? People disagree over that and they argue about that. A lot of the arguments I showed you were kind of obvious. Either obvious that it was right or obvious that it was wrong because of the joke. But in real life, people actually tend to want to argue about things when they disagree about them. (laughs) That's why it's worthwhile spending the time to argue about them. Um, And then it becomes harder, of course. But, I mean, what else are you going to do? Arguing about things... Or explaining why I think I'm right about it is much better than arguing about it or just believing because they've got the best advert on the side of the bus or on the TV or on your Twitter stream or whatever. Um, or Insta chat numpty or whatever it is now that's down with the young folks, you know. Um, <laughs> so, Learning those just those that structure and those three rules of, of what makes for a good argument uh, is a really useful general life skill. In terms of spirituality, spirituality, in terms of all of your academic subjects, actually, because you know, try and think of an academic subject in which you don't have to either argue something, make a case for something, or analyse someone else's case uh, for something where you're not engaged in communication, in in rhetoric. Logic is not, as you know, not the whole of communication or rhetoric, but it is a very important part, uh, particularly that relates to the value of truth, although those things are all bound up together. So, you know, if I say the Holocaust was wrong, not only am I I saying I think it was objectively bad, I'm also saying it is true to claim that the Holocaust was objectively bad. So when I say was objectively bad, I mean truly objectively bad. When I say rainbows are beautiful, I don't just mean I like rainbows. Do you like rainbows? I mean rainbows are beautiful. I mean it is good to appreciate looking at a rainbow. And if you think that it is bad to appreciate looking at a rainbow, you are wrong, my friend. <laughs> Have you seen one of them? You know? <laughs> so these values, this rhetoric, just as spirituality is about binding us together, it's because truth and goodness and beauty are bound together. And that's why rhetoric is all bound together together and why our spirituality should be trying to bind us together as as paul says as we put on christ and go from glory unto glory we become more christ-like more like god intends us to be in him more whole more shalom in our lives our relationships how we relate spiritually to god to the world to other people, to ourselves, um, and thinking carefully at an appropriate level for us as much as we can with the the faculties that we've been given. You know, not everyone's going to be a brilliant world-class logician, just like not everyone's going to be a brilliant world-class mathematician or m- m- uh, composer or musician or whatever. Um, but you know, we can all enjoy having a sing-song. At, the new year's party or church or what have you doing these things to our own levels but we should at least be trying to raise our game (laughs) as it were in a way appropriate for us so i hope that is a useful introduction general skills apply it to lots of stuff spirituality logic they're all bound up together and this afternoon we'll get to look at this stuff about king david i'll show you some of the evidence actually that there is extra biblical evidence for the existence of king david not that you need it in order to be rational in believing in him. Thank you. <laughs> so, <laughs> how's our timing going? We're going good. Any questions that you have? Um, and if not, and when we finish, we'll uh, break a little early for lunch. <coughs> Do you think that logics are a thing that will, will like, fade away from uh, society? Because now we're, we're dealing with these mm. this thoughts about nothing is right or everything is right. And, yeah. and uh, it's hard to convince people using logic because they will just deny it. Yeah, yeah. So, and the whole sort of rise of the discussion about fake news and that sort of political rhetoric around what sources of information do you trust in the age of the internet when anyone can put up information and you treat Wikipedia as just as reliable as Encyclopedia Britannica, which it's not, uh, and so on. Um, I think it's much harder to get rid of the notions of truth and logical argument than it is to say to dispense with the notion of objective beauty. You can kind of get by if you say, no, rainbows are not really beautiful. It's just that when I look at them, I have warm, fuzzy feelings because of my evolutionary history somehow. Make up a Justo story. Um, I like rainbows. If you don't, hey, never mind. It's, you can, but it's a lot harder, I think, to do that with morality and even harder to do it with logic. Um, and I think even the most so-called, you know, self-professed sort of post-modern person who sort of says, you know, I don't really believe there is any such thing as the truth. Um, when you catch them in their ordinary everyday life, when they're not being awkward in order to argue against your belief in God or whatever, they're watching a, uh, a quiz show on television you know, there was a famous quiz show in the UK called The Weakest Link. It went all around there. have was an American version and so on. And um, there would be a panel of people and there would be general knowledge questions asked and people would buzz in to, to answer the questions and get them right or wrong, true or false. And then, the drama of it was, then everyone on who was being asked questions would vote and for one of the other panellists to disappear. And the panellists who got the most votes would disappear. And they were being asked to vote for who was the weakest link, who, who got the, the most questions wrong. Because as they went through, they would get money for getting the right answers. And the winner or the winners of the show would share the money. Okay? But what that meant was there was actually an incentive for people to think to themselves, Fred is getting a lot of these questions right. He's getting more right than I am. If I leave Fred in, and I vote for Jill, who actually got them all wrong, I'm not doing so well. I might get voted off. I might not end up with any money. So I'm going to vote for Fred. Well, I know Jill got them all wrong, Fred got them all right, but I'm voting Fred is the weakest link. And if enough people thought like that, then Fred, even though he'd done really well at the questions, bye, Fred, bye-bye. And the whole drama of the quiz show came from this: Are they going to vote in line with what truthfully just happened, or are they going to stab each other in the back because they want the money? As the drama, uh, you know, there were multiple countries made versions of this show. It ran for like decade uh, in the UK. It was the most popular quiz show on television. People who postmodernists, I bet you, watched that show and were gripped by it, because they, really, they understand the notion of getting a question right or wrong and they understand the, the, the drama of the voting in line with what did happen or not. Did the votes truthfully re- reflect or not because of the, the moral pressure of the situation and that's the whole drama of the show. So they intuitively understand those things when they're not trying to, you know, go into the university seminar and argue for postmodern this, that or the other. I, I, I had a fascinating experience at my first university where I studied um, three subjects in my first year at Cardiff, including English literature. Really enjoyed English literature at A-level before going to university. Went to Cardiff and found myself at that time in the <coughs> early <coughs> Um with a very postmodern English department with lecturers who literally gave lectures and wrote books saying that texts don't mean anything they only mean what they mean to you yeah the text so you know the back of a cornflakes package and a shakespearean play one's not inherently more meaningful or significant than the other the question is, what does it mean to you? Sort of reader response. Roland Bath, the author is dead. Um, and yet they would give lectures to communicate to their students the idea that language doesn't really communicate anything. They would write books that they would ask their students to buy for the course, in which they argued that um, books don't have an inherent message. They only mean what they mean to you. It's like, well why should I buy your book then <laughs> why shouldn't I go and read the back of a cornflake packet this is a, it, was going through this, it was part of the, going through this experience that pushed me into the, uh, taking a philosophy honours degree there uh, eventually um, so they end up contradicting themselves inevitably when they make those denials and you can't live consistently with it I think it's much harder to to try and live consistently with a denial of of truth and fact than it is to try and live consistently with a denial of of beauty, although they are all tied up together um, you know truth and fact much more often if when you try and deny it will slap you in the face <laughs> um, in n- nasty ways <laughs> um, do you know do you know the ravi yeah i' a uh, question i 've got a ravi zachariah story, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I was just wondering, how do you
0: argue, like, moral relativism? People who will just say, like, the yeah. is not, like, morally wrong would just agree that it's not a good idea to kill each other.
1: Right. So there I would, I would again, burden of proof. I would, first of all, argue that uh, it's their job to give me good arguments to believe that. Um, because uh, it's just so obvious to me that the Holocaust was wrong, mm-hmm. that I don't need an argument I'm not, I don't think that because I've been argued into believing it. Um, and I bet they don't believe their moral relativism because it's just, it was obvious to them. They've been arg- they think they've been argued into it. So, what were the arguments? And I would ask them to show me the arguments and I would show them the mistakes in all of the arguments because I think all of the arguments for the position don't work. Um, well, that's where I'd start from.
0: I like believe in the evolution and just, we all just.
1: Yeah, but all that, yeah, all, 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 I say, all that gets you that evolutionary story is, and so we've been programmed to feel a certain way. Mm. But I can agree with that. I can say, okay, yeah, we feel a certain way, and maybe that is an explanation of how we've come to feel that certain way. But I'm asking a different question. I'm asking the question: When I feel this certain way about the Holocaust, am I right? Is that true or not now for them to say no it's not true what they have to say is that evolutionary explanation I've given to you is the whole story there's nothing else well that's a philosophical claim that goes beyond the evolutionary story that they've just told you about why you feel a certain way um, you could for the sake of argument grant well you know maybe that's how God arranged for us to come to have these moral feelings and he arranged things in that way because he knew that when we have those moral feelings that's an accurate reflection of reality Um, now you know in a sense you can't say that unless you believe in God but also you can't deny that unless you can deny God (laughs) Um, which takes you on to a whole broader discussion as it were, the, the real difference between you comes down to you have a different worldview about, about, not really about morality, but about the preconditions of making moral claims, which, yeah, comes down to whether or not there's God. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, burden of proof is always important to, to think about. Whose job is it to, to argue here? And if it's their job, then, then you, you just have the role of listening carefully trying to understand what they're saying, which is, which is good ethos. <laughs> um, and then trying to gently and lovingly point out the flaws in the argument, um, help them to think through their view. And yeah, as Schaefer says, push them to, can you live consistently with that? Because again, the instance I was giving, the Ravi Zacharias story. Um, Ravi Zacharias tells us, you can find it on YouTube, but he says I was—he's he, obviously a Christian apologist from India, from a Hindu background, Eastern uh, worldview, you know, um, which comes, tends to look down upon absolute truth claims and so on. And he was giving a lecture in America, and this—an American professor, uh, religious studies professor, something—comes up and sort of says, "No, no, I, I want you know, let's go out for dinner and, d- and discuss this because you're you're doing this all wrong. You're using this sort of either-or Western logic." Uh, but there's also the Eastern, there's the Eastern logic, which is kind sort of both-and. It's not either, it's both-and. And they went out to dinner, and Ravi just let this guy explain his view. I listened to him, and at the end of the meal said to him, so okay, let, me, let me just make sure I'm understanding what you're, you're saying properly, Professor. What you're saying to me is, um, I, I, I either use the Western either-or logic, when I argue for my worldview, beliefs, or I could use this Eastern both and logic. And the professor went, yeah, the the either or does seem to emerge, doesn't it? And I said, yeah, and I've got news for you, professor. Even in India, where I come from, (laughs) the irony of this situation not being lost on him, when we cross the road, we look both ways. Both ways. Because it's either the bus or me. (laughs) Um, Reality is (laughs) hard to deny that it comes in these binary true-false either-or, yes-no, does it meet the criteria or not, Um, however much we try and self contradictorily argue ourselves into denying it.